Well, we are here together this morning, as Justin just indicated, to hear from God. And in the Bible, which we call His Word, God has messages for us. And we are now in a current sermon series entitled, Eight Life-Changing Sayings of Jesus. What we're doing is focusing on the Gospel of John and looking at a number of these things that all have the phrase, I am, in there. So today we're going to look at John chapter 8, beginning at verse 48. So turn in your Bible to that passage, if you will, and leave your Bible open because we're going to be really looking at a lot of different verses today. John 8, 48 through 59. It's on page 1139. You'll notice that up there uh, in the Bibles that are under the the chair rack in front of you. And also, children, the word of the day is Pharisees. So we're going to be talking about the Pharisees this morning and some things that they believed about Jesus. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 48. Hear the word of the Lord. The Jews answered him, that is Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the, the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, earlier this morning we sang um, how much we need you. And it was so wonderful to hear all of the voices in this room expressing our need of you. And now we say that again, Lord. We need you to give us understanding. We need you, Holy Spirit to speak through the Bible, through this passage of your word. We need you, Father, to show us more about the Son so that as we gaze upon the Son of God and his glory, we might be transformed by that glory and we might be equipped to go out and reflect that glory to this needy world in which we live. Lord, would you come, would you use this time now to speak to us and show us Jesus? And we pray this in his name. Amen. You know, we have never lived at a time when it was both more difficult and more important to prove who you are. I'm talking about identity theft. You know, if somebody had mentioned the phrase identity theft, what, 50 years ago, we probably wouldn't have known what in the world he's talking about. And uh, catfishing was something that you did with a boat and a rod and reel, not a computer. You know what catfishing is, 
right? Uh, borrowing someone's identity on, online and creating a whole persona using the photos and the identity of somebody else. How many of you have had your identity stolen, by the way? Some of you? Well, that's pretty good. I don't see a single... Last year, we had our identity stolen. Someone filed a fraudulent tax return using our names and our social security numbers, hoping that the tax refund check, which we didn't get, (laughs) would come to them. But Fortunately, it didn't happen, but identity is a big deal. Identity theft is a big deal. And in the four Gospels, the identity of Jesus was a big deal too. People were never quite sure who Jesus was, where he had come from, or where he was going. Here's a list, for example, of some of the many times in the four Gospels when people ask Jesus, who are you? You can see it up there from Luke 5. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Luke 7, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this, Matthew chapter 2? Over in John chapter 12, where Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They say, who is this Son of Man? And uh, then we get here to John chapter 8, where we're going to sit for a while this morning. In John 8, verse 53, the Jews around Jesus ask him, who do you make yourself out to be? That sounds just like, who do you think you are? Well, in John's gospel, Jesus answers that question, who do you think you are? And he does it with a phrase, I am, and then he fills in the blank with some other reality. In fact, that's what our series is. We're looking at eight life-changing sayings of Jesus that begin with these words, I am. Two weeks ago, we looked at I am the bread of life. Last week, Matt talked about I am the light of the world. We're going to see about the door in the future, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the life, and so on. These are these I am sayings. But this one that we come to today just says I am. And you will notice if you're a careful Bible student that the words I am appear a lot in the four Gospels. Sometimes they appear without a predicate at all. That is, I am. And then we're left wondering. It's kind of an enigmatic saying. I am. Now look over in verse 24 of this chapter, for example. Just up the page. In verse 24, Jesus says, Unless you believe that I am... Now our English translators have supplied the word he... I am he, but actually in the Greek, it is not there. It's just I am. And notice this Greek phrase. I know many of you can't read Greek. That's fine. But I'll tell you how it's pronounced. It's ego I me. Ego I me is I am. And it's over and over. And right there in verse 24, it just says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Also look at verse 28 of this same chapter. Jesus says to the Jews, when you have lifted up the Son of Man then you will know that I am. There it is again, ego I me. Now again, our English Bible probably says I am he or I am the one or something like that. But actually in the Greek it's just, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority. So this phrase wasn't unknown to the people to whom Jesus spoke. I am, ego I me. But nothing could prepare them for verse 58. That's the verse that is the key verse of our passage today. Verse 58 says, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. Now, those two words, ego, I, me, were so offensive to the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking that they sought to kill him. And you've got to wonder why. What was it about those two little words that pushed these people over the edge like that? And made them so incensed. Well, the answer will come as we dive into this text today. I'm going to share three things with you. Let me give you what they are. And then we're going to look at each one one at a time. Because in these three points, the truth about I am is revealed. First, Jesus Christ will dismantle your categories. That's part of what I am means. He will dismantle your categories. Number two, he will demolish your pride. And number three, but if you trust in him... He will satisfy your deepest longings. I really believe that in that phrase, I am, you're going to see all three of those things. So let's start with number one and dive right in. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, the first thing he was communicating is that he came to dismantle our categories. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that when you understand who Jesus really is, the way you view reality will automatically change. Your worldview will change. The way you view yourself will change. The way you view God, the way you view other people, all of those things will change when you understand who Jesus really is. And in this passage, Jesus is certainly dismantling the categories of these people in John 8. So let's ask the question, who were they? Who were these people to whom Jesus was speaking? Well, most of them were Pharisees. The Pharisees, who were they? Some of you may not have ever heard that term. The Pharisees were a sect or a party within Judaism. Their name literally means separated ones. They were the legalists of the day. They were the, you might say, fundamentalists of Jesus' day. Their main concern was obeying the law of God. Now, obeying the law of God is a good thing. We should all be concerned with that. But the Pharisees didn't just keep the law, they expanded the law. They added to the law. They created their own sets of rules and traditions for keeping God's law. They looked at everything through the grid of their traditions. And Jesus didn't fit into their grid. He claimed to be the Messiah, but he wasn't the kind of Messiah they were expecting. Their grid didn't include him. He was the what illegitimate, most people thought, son of a poor carpenter. He was a Nazarene. Nothing good, they said, would come out of Nazareth. He didn't honor the Sabbath day like they thought he should. He didn't do the ritual washings like they thought he should. He didn't separate himself from unclean people like they thought he should. And so they were shocked when Jesus says down there in verse 51... Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Why was that shocking? Well, it was shocking because who would want to keep his word when in their minds he's a total lawbreaker? He didn't follow the rules. He didn't fit their grid. So they say in verse 52, well, now we know you have a demon. Uh, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say... If anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Now, I'm going to say more about Abraham a little bit later. 
But for now, just notice how much the Pharisees trusted in their pedigree. How much they trusted in their relationship to Abraham. See, they thought their connection to Abraham gave them an entitled or privileged status with God. They thought the fact that they could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham automatically curried the favor of God. They were in the elite camp before God. But notice what Jesus says about that in verse 56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. The Pharisees went ballistic when he said that. In verse 57, they say, What? You're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, Ego eimi, I am. Now those two words, I am, Ego eimi, were like a bullseye drone strike into the hearts of these Pharisees. Somebody has said this, that these are the words of the most impudent blasphemer that ever spoke or the words of God incarnate. What do they mean? What do these words, I am, really mean? Well, the Pharisees knew exactly what they meant. They, they and you, we should all go back to the book of Exodus to find out what I am means. Now, we're not going to turn to that, but I'll just tell you what happens. Back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses was out in the wilderness of Midian tending his father-in-law's sheep. Most of you, I'm sure, have seen the movies. You've seen this scene where Moses is out there in the desert and he sees something that you don't ordinarily see out in the middle of a desert, a bush on fire. And it wasn't consumed. And so Moses, out of curiosity, wanders over to that bush and all of a sudden a voice comes out of the bush saying, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals because the ground on which you're standing is holy. It's God speaking out of that bush. And God continues to say, Moses, I've got a job for you to do. I've heard the affliction. I've heard the cry of my people of Israel who are enslaved in Egypt. I've seen their troubles. And I want to send you, Moses, into Egypt to tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let my people go. Moses, go to Egypt. I want you to tell him, let my people go. Moses says, God, I'm not eloquent. I can't do that. And so Moses and God have this running dialogue in Exodus 3. And then finally Moses says, If I say to the Israelites, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what's his name, what should I say? And God says, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, Moses, I am has sent me to you. Now, The Hebrew word for that phrase, I am, is where we get the name of God, Yahweh, from. You've you've heard of Yahweh, probably, or you've certainly seen it in your Old Testament. Whenever you see the word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's this Hebrew word, Yahweh. And it comes from this phrase, I am. It's a Hebrew word that basically just means to be, or being, or is. The Hebrew word I am, Yahweh. And when in the 3rd or 2nd centuries B.C., the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, those words I am became, you guessed it, ego, ami, in Greek, I am. 
I am is a claim, you see, to pre-existence, to deity, to lordship. Jesus is saying that he is the Lord, the second person of the Trinity. He is God in the flesh. Speaking here in John chapter 8. He is the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God who transcends time. Who is and who was and who always will be. Imagine if you will, if you can, millions upon millions of years. If you can conceive of that amount of time in your head, just think of it. Jesus Christ was infinitely before those. In fact, Jesus is above time and beyond time. Jesus never had a beginning. There was never a time when Jesus was not. Just like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The eternal triune God has always been, always will be. Because they are transcending time. Jesus is over time. It's just like John said at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And that's simply another name for Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And that is why these Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. He claimed to be God. He had a direct connection with Yahweh who appeared in the burning bush to Moses. They wanted to kill him. See, as long as you define Jesus as merely the leader of some major world religion, on the par with Confucius, for example, as long as you define Jesus as a moral example or a great teacher or even a kind and self-sacrificing savior, he's safe, isn't he? He's safe. He's benign. He's sort of like the Queen of England. You know, they call her Your Majesty, but she has no power. She has no power. She's just a figurehead. But if Jesus is God, not just a figurehead, but really and truly God, if He is the one and only source of eternal life, if God is the one being in all of the universe with the right to demand unqualified obedience and worship, Why, that's intolerable to these Pharisees. That didn't fit their grid at all. Now, for the Christian, it's a wonderfully comforting truth, isn't it? It's wonderful to know that Jesus is the eternal God who never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because we're secure if Jesus is that God. We're secure in His unchanging covenant love. Your sins and your failures don't rock His world. Uh, They don't alter His affection for you. In Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. So we who know Christ draw great comfort and strength and security from this truth about the eternality of Jesus, the fact that He's eternal and unchanging. Our 14-year-old granddaughter was visiting with us this past week from Mississippi, spent a few days with us, uh, wanted to go see the group Pentatonix, so we went to see them, and they, she stayed with us for a good while last week, and we went to the Orlando Eye for the first time, big uh, Ferris wheel down on Eye Drive. That was quite an experience. You should do it. It was good. I, I really get motion sickness most of the time, but this is not that hard, so it was fine. But I was up there. This thing stands 400 feet tall. It weighs 3 million pounds. 
And when we got up to the very top, looking over, you know, all of the scenery there, I was so glad to be able to look down and see a foundation. Bolts and cables and iron, you know, holding this thing down. And that's the way Jesus is. He is our foundation. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. Isn't it comforting to know that we have that kind of sovereign, solid Savior? A Savior whose love and favor are dependable day one all the way to the end of time. But while that is a comforting truth, what Jesus is burdened to say in this text is don't you dare forget who I am. Don't try to manage me. Don't try to control me or tell me what I can and cannot do. Don't try to fit me, Pharisees, into your grid. You have to fit into my grid. You don't set the rules. I do. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says, I am. You see, he needs to say that to us. And even we who know him need to hear him say that to us. Because we still have this fallen, sinful nature that is allergic to the real God. And we naturally want to avoid him. So, in his place, we create a God of our liking. A God more on our level. A God in our image. You might say we want a defanged and a declawed lion for a God. We want a cliff notes kind of God, a condensed reader's digest kind of God who doesn't take up too much of our time. We want a Weight Watchers microwave meal kind of God. Have you ever had one of those? You ever had a Weight Watchers microwave meal? You know what's wrong with those Weight Watchers dinners? They take your hunger pains away for a while, but they're so bland and they're so unsatisfying. And yet so many people want a God like that. They want to be just religious enough to feel better about themselves, but not so religious as to follow a God who demands 100% allegiance. In our fallenness, we want a God who will love us just the way we are, give us fringe benefits, meet our needs, answer our prayers, but doesn't bring suffering and loss into our lives and ask very much of us. And above all else, He must not touch our idols. He must not touch our lusts and fantasies and secret ambitions. Oh, we'll study the Bible. We'll study the Bible as long as we can decide what to obey in the Bible. We'll learn theology, just like the scribes and Pharisees. These guys were experts. These were the religious leaders of the day. These were the religious establishment of the day. And we want to be that way. We will learn theology, just like them. But we don't want to bow before the God of theology and say, Your will, not mine, be done. We want a God we can put into a box and say, This is who you are, instead of a God of mystery and sovereign power and wrath and holy love who says, This is who I am. So, friends, we have to constantly let Jesus, through his word, the Bible, dismantle and disrupt our categories. We have to let him examine us and confront us and change our thinking as long as we live. It doesn't stop. 
ran across a quote this past week in which a woman said this, Knowing Jesus demands embracing the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of your imagination. So if you think you know Jesus and you haven't ever had your categories blown apart, you may just not know him at all. If he hasn't rocked your worldview, if he hasn't called your values into question and caused you to think differently about him and you and other people, you need to go to him and say, Lord, just like Moses did in Exodus 33, Lord, show me your glory. But just be prepared for the unexpected. So that's the first thing I see in this phrase, I am. Jesus wants to dismantle our categories Give us a whole new perspective. Secondly, he wants to demolish our pride. It doesn't get any better, folks. (laughs) He wants to demolish our pride. You know, the Pharisees were a proud lot. They were proud about three things in particular. They all start with P. One thing I've mentioned already, they were proud of their pedigree. They were very proud of their Jewishness, their relationship to Abraham. They claimed Abraham as their spiritual father. And of course, he was their ancestor. That's not in dispute. But they rubbed your faces in it. They kept talking about Abraham. He's mentioned 11 times in the book of John. All of them right here in chapter 8. They said in verse uh, 33, we are offspring of Abraham. In verse 39, Abraham is our father. In verse 53, which I read earlier, are you greater, Jesus, than our father, Abraham? Again and again and again, they took pride in their pedigree. But look at what Jesus does. He says in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. (laughs) How about that? I love that about Jesus. He wasn't afraid to say things like that and to call people out. You are of your father, the devil. Pedigree. Secondly, the Pharisees were proud of their performance. They were scrupulous in their obedience to rules and traditions. They often pointed out how obedient to the law of God they were, and they condemned anyone who failed to live up to their standards. You might think, for example, of Luke 18, where Jesus tells the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Remember that? They both went up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee said, Thank you, Lord, that I am not like him. I fast, I tithe, I do all these things. See, that was the microcosm of the, of the Pharisees' mindset. They were proud of their performance. And third, the Pharisees were proud of their power. Even though the Pharisees were a fairly small sect, they were highly influential. The Jewish people feared them. The Pharisees were the cultural elite. They were the power brokers of the day. In fact... Their beliefs and practices became the foundation to what we now know as Orthodox Judaism or conservative Judaism. So pedigree, performance, power. That was the triune God of the Pharisees. And their pride really shows up in this passage in how they treat Jesus. Right? Did you notice that? How they treated him so disrespectfully? They insult Jesus in verse 48. By calling him a Samaritan. Now you know, unfortunately, we have racial slurs in our culture. This was a racial slur in that culture. You're a Samaritan. And they went on to say, you're demon-possessed. 
Why did they do this? Why did they so disrespect Jesus? They did it because Jesus was attacking everything that they built their faith on. But I want you to notice something beautiful about Jesus. In fact, so much of this passage is just, let's get to know Jesus better. Let's watch him in action. Notice the response of Jesus to the pride of the Pharisees. Two things, a combination of strength and humility. First of all, strength. Look at verse 55. He says, you have not known the Father. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Wow. There it is again. Wow, you're a liar. You're a bunch of liars. Now that's strength. Sometimes you'll see these pictures of Jesus that make him out to look a bit like a a pansy. You know, he's not a weakling. He's not a weakling. He is strong. The strength of Jesus. Ray Steadman, a name some of you recognize, once said, telling these Pharisees that they don't know the Father would be like telling the CEO of McDonald's that he doesn't know anything about hamburgers. (laughs) But notice not only the strength of Jesus, notice the humility of Jesus. Look at verse 50. The humility of Jesus shines in verse 50. He says, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Also, verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is not, you know, boasting of his glory. The one person in the universe who had every right to boast, every right to talk about his own power, instead says, my glory is nothing. I'm totally dependent on what the Father, on how the Father glorifies me. What about you? What about me? And what about us? What do we base our glory on? Could I ask you, where do you get your sense of significance? What do you typically look to? Is it your pedigree, your family history, your marriage, your kids, your connections? Or maybe it's your performance, your works, the good things you do. Or is it your power, your wealth, your influence, your knowledge, your good looks, your athleticism, your skill set? Do you, like Abraham, rejoice in Christ? See, he was a man of faith. He looked forward and he rejoiced to see the day of Christ. That's where he got his glory from. That's what Abraham boasted in, the coming Messiah. Do you do that? Or do you need to glory in your own record, your own righteousness? The Bible says our righteousness is about as good as a bunch of filthy rags. The righteousness of Christ has been given to you. You don't need your own righteousness. You don't need to establish your own righteousness. And so if you're proud, if you're like these Pharisees, you need to go back and listen again to our strong and humble Savior say, before Abraham was, I am. And grow to resemble him more and more. Well, now let's end with some good news. We've seen that Jesus will dismantle your categories. He will demolish your pride. But the good news is if you will trust in Him, if you will trust in Christ, not just at the beginning of salvation, but all the way to the end when you get home, if you will trust Christ, He will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Look at verse 51. 
Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now that's shorthand. That's shorthand for everything that Jesus came to do for his people. He may just as well have said, if anyone keeps my word, he'll have eternal life. Eternal life. But that's not just for living in the future. We usually all, you know, we, we jump forward. We fast forward to heaven when we hear eternal life. But that's not what Jesus means by eternal life. It's something here and now. It means this, being set free. Free from the guilt of things you've done wrong in the past. Free from regret. Free from the fear of death. Free from the shame of not measuring up. Free from having to measure up. Free from having to please people. Free from the wrath of God. Free from the power of addiction. Free from the opinions of others. Free from worry. Free from the tyranny of the devil. Free from enslavement to money. Free from orphan ways of thinking. Free from being left out. Free from the pressure the world puts upon you. Free from a joyless, purposeless existence. Free from depending upon pleasure, possessions, and position to find life and meaning. Free from the power of sin. Free from the penalty of sin. Do you want me to go on? And one day, one day when we get home, it means being free from the very presence of sin and living forever with Christ and all of His redeemed people on the new earth where the enjoyment of God will be as fresh and glorious after many ages as it was at first. Friends, those are the things your heart longs for. Everything that I just mentioned, you long to be set free. Those of you who are believers, it doesn't stop when you embrace Christ. We still need to be set free, don't we? That's what we're yearning for, and it's included in a relationship with Jesus Christ. When you let go of your pride, turn from your sins, and ask Christ to come in and take control, you'll begin and continue on this journey to eternal life. It's available to all. It doesn't matter where you've come from, what you've done, how you've blown it, or or how you've messed up your life. It's available. If anyone, Jesus says in verse 52, keeps his word, you will never taste death. Anyone. I don't know. I don't know where you are today. I might be speaking to someone who says, there's just no way. It's not, it's not for me. I'm too far away from God. I've done so much wrong. You just don't get it. Well, I, what I get is that verse. If anyone keeps my word. And one of the things in the word is come to Jesus. Sadly, the Pharisees didn't want to do that. Instead, verse 59 says that they picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted him dead because of ego eimi, two little words. They were blasphemous words in their thinking. Jesus deserved to die. But Jesus' time hadn't yet come. And the verse says that he hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, six months later, Jesus didn't hide. He allowed himself to be arrested, betrayed, condemned to die, tortured, and nailed to a cross on a hill outside Jerusalem. The innocent, eternal Son of God dying in the place of sinners. Jesus is the great I Am. That's what this passage says. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. So do what Abraham did. Rejoice 
in Christ. Stop trusting in things that don't last and walk with this humble, strong Savior. Just like we said earlier this morning in a song, Come, ye sinners, weak and wretched, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love and power. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitless fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we do need You. And so we come before You this morning to pray and ask that You will reveal Christ in His glory more and more to us. We know that it will never stop. Wherever we are on this journey of faith, we get to know Him better every day and it will continue on into eternity. But Lord, today we admit to You how content we are with a little Christ instead of a big, glorious, eternal Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for squeezing You into our grid instead of walking after You and obeying Your grid. We pray, Lord... Holy Spirit, that you'll fill us now with your power as we bring this offering to you. We want to treat it like a, a way of bringing ourselves to you. And so, Lord, here we are. Take and use us and shape us more and more into the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.